My name is Scott Nye, and this is Talking Radical Radio. Hello and welcome to Talking Radical Radio, where we bring you grassroots voices from across Canada. We give participants in a wide range of social change work a chance to take a longer view as they talk about what they do, how they do it, and why they do it. On this week's show, I will be interviewing Julie Lalonde of Hollaback, Ottawa, a group that is organizing against street harassment. Street harassment is a new name for an old problem, that spectrum of ways that gender-based harassment and violence plays out in public places, from men being jerks to women on the street, on up to various forms of sexual assault. Hollaback is an international network of local groups using information technology, social media, and an array of public pedagogy strategies to change the conversation about street harassment, to change policies, and to change behaviors. Lalonde is a founding member of the chapter in Ottawa, and she talks about street harassment and about Hollaback Ottawa's work against it. I spoke with her by phone from Ottawa. My name is Julia Lalonde, and I'm a social justice activist based in Ottawa, originally from Northern Ontario, and I am the site director of Hollaback Ottawa, which is a local chapter of an international movement to address street harassment. Street harassment has existed since streets have existed, but we've only recently begun to define it as street harassment. For years, we called it things like catcalling, dog whistling, and it was very specific to each community and how they defined it, but it was very minimized. But now what we've seen is that there's been an international movement, thanks to things like Hollaback and the Stop Street Harassment, and some of the great work coming out of the revolution in Egypt to talk about street harassment as the most pervasive form of gender-based violence that is also the least legislated against. And so we define street harassment as any gender-specific harassment on the streets that's unwanted, and it goes from comments to groping to sexual assault. It's a real continuum of violence that happens in public space. We as a movement, and me personally in my work doing anti-sexual assault work, really believe in the continuum of sexual violence. So for us, we live in a culture in which we say, oh, I absolutely do not support sexual assault. I am absolutely opposed to rape. And yet we've set this up as some sort of hierarchy where rape is the absolute worst thing that could ever happen to a woman and everything else is just kind of minimal, not so big of a deal, maybe a nuisance. And for us, it's actually a continuum and not a hierarchy. And so we believe that if you want to end rape, if you want to end sexual harassment in the workplace, then you have to look at it as a continuum and say that if we live in a culture in which we say it's okay for a man to scream at a woman obscenities while he's driving down the street, if we live in a world in which we think it's okay to grope people on public transit, then we shouldn't be surprised that that escalates and that we live in a world in which one in four women in Canada will be sexually assaulted in their lifetime. So for us, it's about making the connections between the seemingly innocuous forms of violence that women and trans people experience on the daily and making the connection to larger forms of sexual assault, which we claim to take seriously, but clearly don't. Hollaback itself as an organization was started in the mid-2000s in New York because a woman was on the subway and a guy started publicly masturbating in front of her. And at the time, cell phone cameras were brand new. So what she did was she took out her camera and she took a picture of him and brought it to the NYPD who said, what do you want me to do with this? I'm never going to find this person. So at the time, things like Facebook and Twitter didn't exist. So she posted it on Flickr and it went viral and ended up getting picked up by the press and ended up being able to make an arrest. 
Emily May and some of her friends in New York thought about this and realized that there's a real potential with this upcoming social media and with the um, pervasiveness of cell phone cameras to use that as a way to out and shame the behavior, but really turn the lens from the focus is on me as the target of this violence, but really the focus should be on you because you're the one who's doing something heinous. So that's how we started as Hollaback. But because we were able to start that conversation in New York and then eventually around the world, we were able to raise awareness about the fact that street harassment happens all the time. So what was interesting for us is that in the Egypt resolution, there were many women who were talking about the fact that studies in Egypt have found that almost 100% of women in Egypt have experienced street harassment, oftentimes several times a day. However, if it wasn't for this already sort of international discussion, we easily could have said street harassment is an Egyptian problem. And there's a lot of racist analysis that came out of that saying that these public sexual assaults in Egypt are an Egyptian problem and then really spawned a lot of xenophobia. But because of a global discussion that was already started, we were able to say that no, you know, there's street harassment in Ottawa, there's street harassment in Istanbul, there's street harassment in Mexico, in Baltimore, in Halifax. And so we were able to demonstrate that yes, harassment exists in Egypt and they're having an excellent conversation about street harassment and they're changing the world in Egypt. Like they're changing their country and the way that women's bodies are being viewed, which is revolutionary on its own. But because of the conversation that was already started, we were able to demonstrate that these are examples that are being amplified because of xenophobia, because the same things happen here. We just don't talk about it in the same way. Halabak was getting a little bit more popular around 2010, 2011. There were increasing chapters around the world, and people kept saying, we need one here in Ottawa, because not only is there a lot of street harassment here, but because our whole shtick is that we're very safe and therefore we're a little conservative, we don't talk about the stuff that we experience. So I started up on my own sort of blog spot and then was reached out by the women who started Hollaback, who said, you know, we want you to be a part of the larger movement. And so that's how we started. The model for Hollaback is really inspiring, quite frankly, and I think it's a model that should be recreated elsewhere, which is that if you live in a community and you think there's a need for a Hollaback chapter, they create a site for you, they equip you with everything you need, they give you the training. And so it really puts the power in the hands of people on the ground who know what's best for their community. We do operate as fairly autonomous groups because we know that what works best here in Ottawa might never be appropriate for, you know, for the Czech Republic. So we have the authority to really do whatever we feel is best. The consistency across the globe is that we all operate a website where people can submit stories of street harassment through the website. Then we go through them, we edit them, we put them up on the website. In some countries, an app is available. So here in Canada, there's a free mobile app people can download. So we also do that and through social media. But that's pretty much the only thing that's consistent across the globe. We here in Ottawa have taken on doing quite a bit of public education with young people. So we've gone into schools and had info tables and done workshops in English and French to educate young people about what is street harassment, how you can be an effective bystander. And then in this year, here in 2013, we decided to prioritize harassment on transit, not knowing, of course, that that would be a huge undertaking, but we did that. We had an open forum. We're putting together a report. We had a study. And so that's what we've done here in Ottawa. But in Baltimore, for example, they've developed a Safer Spaces campaign where they've worked with local businesses to offer training to them, and then they put up posters in that organization in that you know coffee shops and record stores to say this is part of the Safer Spaces campaign. 
if you experience harassment in this space, you can contact Hollaback Baltimore. So that's what they thought is best in their community. You know, we've had chalk walks in other communities where we go around and we chalk messages on the sidewalks to raise awareness. We do this here in Ottawa, but there's other communities in which chalking on the sidewalk is against the law. So it's really interesting to see what works best in certain communities in terms of messaging and in terms of medium. Give me a, a few examples of the kinds of stories that you've received in Ottawa. So here in Ottawa, we have received quite a bit of variety in the stories we get. So we've gotten things like I was walking in the market and someone drove by and yelled obscenities at me to I was walking down York Street after work about 1230 at night and some men started yelling at me when I turned around, gave them a dirty look and kept going. They spat at me. Women have had beer bottles in front of them. Women have been groped on public transit. Women have had men publicly masturbate in front of them. So we've had a real plethora of disgusting things happen in Ottawa. And we are grateful that people are comfortable sharing their stories with us. But we know that it's just really a snapshot of the kinds of stuff that is happening. I asked Lalonde to talk about how the sharing of stories on social media, on websites, could make an impact on the problem of street harassment. I think that it plays a large part in shifting the lens. So both literally in the few times that we've had people submit photos, you're literally shifting the lens from me to you. Because what we know about sexual violence and why campaigns that for example, around public transit, telling people to just report it don't work is because the very nature of sexual violence is humiliation, it's power and control. And so you feel absolutely humiliated by something you had absolutely no responsibility for. And so for us, changing that narrative from, rather than me feeling embarrassed that I wore something that you felt the need to comment on, you should be embarrassed that you acted like an animal in a public space. And so I think whether it's literal in the sharing of your story to, you know, shame you uh, or the sharing of a photo of the incident. But I think it's more about the dialogue, about changing the discussion from why do women think it's okay to dress like that and what did you expect when you left the house this morning to what is wrong with society that grown men of all races and all classes and every neighborhood and every occupation feel entitled to touch women and to treat women's bodies like they're public property. And so I think that piece, which is a little bit less concrete and maybe a little bit more difficult to quantify, is really where we're seeing this conversation shift. And whether it's through humor, so highlighting the fact that, you know, it doesn't work. Like, you're never going to get a date with a woman by calling her a dog, right? To just sort of changing the conversation in whatever way we can to get people to understand really how absurd street harassment is and how we've tolerated it for way too long. Hollaback is really in line with generations of feminist organizing, as you said, around things like the personal is political. And if you look at any, any social justice movement ever, it all started with storytelling. So it all started with someone talking about their experience, putting themselves out there, and then other people realizing, well, if that happened to you and it happened to me, that it's clearly not an isolated incident. Then you make the connection that it's systemic, then you go after the system, then you change the dialogue so that you have both the upper level where you're changing the system and then you have the grassroots level where you're changing the people. All social justice movements were built on that premise. So tell me more about the public education work and the kinds of interactions and conversations that you've had with youth. It has been truly amazing to work with youth on this issue, but it's also been a bit of my breaking point a few times. So when I'm going into school, sometimes we're allowed to do a full-on workshop where we get to flesh out street harassment a bit, talk about bystander intervention, which is something that is a huge part of our work. 
then other times it's just, you know, having a social justice day. Can you come and table, bring some material, and have some one-on-one discussions? And it is really depressing <laughs> to have a conversation with girls in grade 7 who come up to your booth and say, like, oh, holla back, you know, that's a pretty catchy title, what's going on here? Oh, well, we're here to talk about street harassment. And they give you this look like, what the heck is that? And then you say, oh, well, you know, when you're walking down the street and then they cut you off and say, yeah, some guy yells something at you or throws something at you or, like, makes kissing noises. And you think to yourself, you are 13, 14 years old. How the hell do you know that? And then to hear stories from young women saying, oh, I was up with my mom and someone yelled at us. Or I was up with my baby sister and someone said this to me. Or, you know, I get this every day when I walk to school, when I walk by the same corner store. To hear that from 13-year-old girls is incredibly depressing, but what is so interesting is that because it's a new phenomenon for them, they're more open about it and their outrage is more visible because they haven't reached that point where many of us have, which is that they're so jaded to it that they don't even think about it anymore. And so when I'm doing outreach or public education with an older crowd, we were flooded with comments from women in their 20s and 30s and 50s and even in their 60s saying, I didn't even think about this stuff. And then I realized, like, oh, my God, this stuff happens every day, and I'm, like, completely oblivious to it now because I've just built up this wall where I just put my headphones on, flap on my sunglasses, and walk to where I got to go and just tune it out. And so I think it's really important overall to do education with younger people because talking to 20-year-old men is too late. But I also think that talking to young women is super important so that they're from the get-go being taught that they don't have to build up a resistance to this stuff and expect it. They can continue to be outraged for the rest of their lives and that they don't have to put up with it. And that has been the biggest learning piece for me in working with young women is they're still outraged and that's good and we want to keep that going. And what kinds of interactions have you had in these contexts with young men on this issue? I'm always cognizant of the fact that I do anti-sexual violence work as a woman. I identify as a woman. I am read as a woman. And so I think I will never have truly meaningful dialoguing with men in the same way that another man could, particularly young men. So it's always tricky doing work with men around violence against women as a woman because you often feel as though people are telling you what they think you want to hear. And then in other cases, there's that sort of machismo attitude because, you know, I look fairly young and so you have teenage guys wanting to sort of pose and be cool in front of you. So it's difficult to do this work in my position with young men, but you do occasionally have that breakthrough. And then once that one guy puts himself out there, as we see with all forms of storytelling, then you'll get other men who back up that statement with, yeah, I see guys do this, and I'm like, does that even work? Like, this is ridiculous. Or men saying that they were embarrassed by the behavior of other men. I think what I've learned is that they might sit there with their arms crossed and kind of shrug off what you're saying, but they're internalizing it anyway. It's just that they live in a world in which being open to talk about masculinity is not safe for them. So I I choose to believe that if 10 of them are rolling their eyes and crossing their arms, maybe, you know, eight of them are taking it in. They're just not showing it. I've never actually had any young men or, or men of any age actively defend street harassment. I think the most dangerous thing we have is men telling you what they think they want to hear and then turning around and doing the opposite. What has been interesting as well and problematic is men who it turns into this sort of hyper-masculine knight in shining armor attitude. So, you know, a couple workshops where men were like, if I ever saw someone do that to my girlfriend, I'd kick their ass. 
and you're like, okay, I, you know, you're on the right path in the sense that you recognize that this is not okay, but fighting fire with fire, not really going to do anything, and, you know, if you're posing and this becomes, you know, like a test of your masculinity, well, that's what that person is doing as well, and that's just not going to end well at all. That conversation happens far more often than the, I don't know why you're getting so upset about this lady, it's not that big of a deal. Tell me more about the Transit Harassment Project. In February, I called a meeting with, her name is Kelsey Diane Deans, and she's the head of the transit committee here in Ottawa. So I thought to send her an email to just say, hey, I've always been around for two years. We'd just like to introduce ourselves. We went through the stories that we get the most, and one of the most common ones is harassment on transit. So we'd like to meet with you just to share the stories that we're hearing and see how we can maybe work together. We'd really like to see a public education campaign on transit. All of our email exchanges seemed fairly pleasant. And then I went to meet with them, and it was the complete opposite. They were very, very hostile. They said there is no harassment on transit. Transit is very safe. And for you to have on your website that a lot of harassment happens on transit is highly subjective and possibly could face legal action for it. And you need to remove these statements from your website. Being who I am, I did the exact opposite. I approached an organization here in Ottawa called Wise Women's Initiative for Safer Environment, and they do safety audits in communities uh, and neighborhoods around Ottawa. And I approached them and I said, we've got to create a town hall type discussion and we've got to open up the floodgates on this thing because I know harassment is happening on transit and transit is not going to create a mechanism for us to have that conversation, so let's do it ourselves. And that's what we did. Meanwhile, three weeks after my conversation with transit where they said that there was no harassment uh, and I was making a mountain out of a molehill, a woman was sexually assaulted on transit and went public with it. An arrest was made and then it blew up over the media with women coming out of the woodwork saying this also happened to me, this also happened to me. The man who was arrested was arrested for several counts of sexual assault on several different women. And they keep saying the power of storytelling. You know, one woman's on the news saying I was groped on the bus and then all of a sudden all these other women who'd never come forward realized, oh wow, this is going to be taken seriously. So they came forward. So there was like an explosion in our local papers and our local media on this issue. We were all over the media saying you know, we want to have a proactive approach to this. We try to work with the city. They're not going to work with us. How do we change the dialogue? So we had a public forum in May. It was incredibly successful. We had tons of people come out to share their story. And what was even more encouraging is we had a ton of people saying, something's got to get done. I don't want to just sit here and share my horribly painful story of being groped on transit and then feel like nothing's going to change. So we kept the momentum going on that. We put together a quantitative survey, which we're now tabulating the results. And a wonderful journalist here in Ottawa did some great work and got the city to acknowledge that they have a 10-point safety plan that's going to be released sometime this summer. And that thanks to our hard lobbying, one of the 10 points will be the creation of a public awareness campaign. So that's a major, major victory to go you know, in five months from this is not an issue, PSAs don't work, I don't know why you would even suggest public awareness campaigns because they're completely ineffective, to no, this needs to be a priority for us in Ottawa. So we're really proud of that. It does not mean our work is over because we have to ensure it actually gets done <laughs> and that it's done effectively. But I think it was a really important moment for Ottawa and for transit riders to realize that their experiences are valid, that you can do something about it, and, you know, the cliche is true, is that you can fight city hall. <laughs> and are PSAs effective? Yes, so we know that proactively addressing sexual assault is 
how we're going to solve this thing. Reactionary measures are great if people are going to report. And what we know about sexual assault is that people don't report. So if you have mechanisms to gather evidence, but it's only used when someone makes a report, then you've wasted a lot of money and energy on something that's never going to be used. So what we're hoping for is the creation of a proactive bystander intervention campaign, because we know that most street harassment in general, but specifically on transit, is witnessed by other people. I was assaulted on transit, and the most horrifying thing of it all was the looks of horror on the face of other people who just stared at me, saying, I can't believe this is happening right now, and didn't do a thing. My story was repeated several times over by several women, where it was you know, even more horrific because you're seeing looks on people's faces who could be helping you, who could be doing something, and chose not to for various reasons. So for us, really showing bystanders that there are things that you can do that are safe, that are effective, that do not put you in harm's way, and that will actually deter people from doing it again is really, really important. Hollaback internationally launched a campaign called I've Got Your Back, which focuses on three approaches. So it's direct, delegate, and distract. So people can choose whatever is safest for them. So if you are a person of privilege and you're not intimidated to do something directly, you can. If it's not safe for you to do so, you can delegate someone else to do it, or you can create a distraction and try to diffuse the situation, which is all fine and great. But first, you've got to show people what to look for. And this is what we've seen when it comes to issues of safety on transit, is when we said to transit authorities, the bus isn't safe for women. They could think, well, we're talking about, you know, women getting their purses stolen or things that are very overt and, and easy to spot. Instead, when we showed them the, the whole myriad of stories that we received, there's things that people might not necessarily even know something's going on. It looks uncomfortable and they can see that that person's not okay, but they don't even know what to look for. So the first part of it is to just name the problem, to say, if you see a woman get up three times and someone sit beside her every time, that woman's trying to get away from that man, and that is a form of harassment. When you see someone standing way too close to somebody when there's plenty of room on the bus, that's a form of harassment. When you see somebody do something quick, someone yell, and that person run off, that is a form of harassment. So the first step is just telling people what to look for, because we don't live in a culture in which we talk about it. And then secondly is giving them tangible things I noticed on your website that part of the conversation that you seem to be working on is around sexual orientation and harassment related to sexual orientation as well. Can you talk a little bit about that? Street harassment is gender-based in the sense that it's about keeping people in their place. And so that does not just mean women, cisgendered straight women walking down the street. It also means queer couples. So the amount of horror stories we have heard from, you know, two men just out for a walk with their partner and the level of homophobic harassment that they experience that's highly sexualized. Men who are read as queer, not even necessarily identifying as queer, but men who are read as queer experience extremely high levels of homophobic street harassment. People who are trans or are read as trans experience high levels of transphobic harassment. Hollaback International, and particularly Hollaback chapters in the U.S., have been having this conversation over the past few weeks in regards to Trayvon Martin and really calling what happened to Trayvon Martin what it is, which is racist street harassment. It's someone making assumptions about someone else based on their race and then jumping to all kinds of conclusions, which in this case ended in someone's death. And so street harassment, yes, is gender-based, but it's primarily about power and control and about keeping people in someone's place. And so 
high, high levels of homophobic, transphobic, and racist and ableist, you know, women in scooters who've experienced harassment on that basis. This stuff happens all the time. I asked Lalonde what sort of public responses they've been getting to their work in Ottawa beyond the hostility from City Hall. We have been uh, really delighted to see the level of positive feedback that we've gotten. Being a woman and a feminist and an outspoken one in both the real world and online, I have you know a nice solid following of trolls and haters. We definitely got some backlash from individuals all of which were men, needs to be stated, who thought what we were doing was outrageous, that either harassment on transit is not a thing, or if it is, there's no way you could possibly safely intervene. You're asking people to put themselves in harm's way, how irresponsible of you, down to threats of, I'm going to come to your forum and expose you for who you are, which was a little, a little terrifying. But we've been really delighted to see journalists So there's been op-eds written in our defense from people that we've never met, who've never connected with us, but who heard our story and said, yes, I've seen this stuff happen, and it's time that Ottawa does something about it. To tons and tons of emails and tweets and Facebook posts from people saying, thank you for starting this conversation, because I stopped taking transit long while ago because my friend was sexually assaulted or I was sexually assaulted. And so that's really the fuel that's keeping us going right now, because We're an entirely volunteer organization. Everyone who's a part of Hollaback Ottawa has a full-time job and then some. So to expend all of this energy on something and to get that kind of feedback from people saying, thank you for doing this great work, please keep it up, is really what's keeping us going right now. It is really difficult and it's really frustrating to be in meetings with people who are on the sunshine list who are telling you that you're a waste of time when you're going to meeting after meeting that go nowhere. So we're really relying on that feedback to keep us going. What would you say to uh, someone in another city that doesn't have a Hollaback group but that thinks it's really important, a really great idea? I would say contact us 100%. You do not need to have all the expertise. They will teach you how to run a website, how to do social media effectively, how to get up to speed on the issues. So contact iHollaback.org, get in touch with them. We even have a button at the top of of the main website that shows you the full list of all the chapters around the world. And then it says if there's not a chapter in your city and you click on that and you can apply to host a Hollaback chapter. And I highly encourage people to do it. It's really rewarding and it's really great to just open up that space. And what I have learned in my experience is you might feel like it's a lot of work that you can't take on and that you're going to be alone. But oftentimes people are just waiting for someone to initiate the process, and then they're on board. You have been listening to my interview with Julie Lalonde, a founding member of Hollaback Ottawa. For more information about her group's work or to find out how to start a Hollaback chapter in your town, you can visit their website at ottawa.ihollaback.org. That's ottawa.ihollaback.org. To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, or to make suggestions about topics for future shows, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link marked radio. That's talkingradical.ca. I'm your host, Scott Nye, a writer and media producer based in Sudbury, Ontario, and the author of two books of Canadian history told through the stories of activists, Gender and Sexuality, and Resisting the State, both from Fernwood Publishing. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you tune in again next week. Thank you.